He says, uh, in over past years in the instructions, there tended to be more emphasis on real precision with noticing the breath and different aspects and really connecting and sustaining. And in the last couple of years, there seems to be a general movement away from that in the instructions. Is there any rationale? <laughs> Trying to think what level to answer it on. Um, there is a rationale. We never get all levels at once. <laughs> um, personally, I don't think it's that one thing is better and one way is worse. It's that in in this in all in this practice, whatever way we speak, it, uh, like if we emphasize precision. There's times that that's extremely helpful, and in the emphasis on precision, it, it gives that uh, a more kind of highlighting. And then there's times for certain people, times for all of us, when precision gets too tight and too limited and narrow, and we need to open to the spaciousness that precision turns into grasping, for example, at the breath. Um, so for some years we were really, and it's partly just the vagaries of how um, as a group, all of our own practice is going. So, to be quite honest, when Upandita first came here and we all started sitting with him a lot, the way he teaches, if you've listened to the tapes, if you haven't sat with him, is very much extremely precise, uh, in generally, extremely precise, precise, noting quite specifically. And if you can do that with a balanced energy, it's necessary to have a balanced energy. You can get very concentrated, and it can really deepen your practice. Now, what we found is that very often, many people, especially as a general instruction to 100 people, don't meet that with a balanced energy, and in fact, get tight and striving and self-judgmental. And so a balance for that is to uh, open into a wider space where there's still connection but with body, with sound, using that as a way to connect with awareness that's awake yet also spacious. So we're basically experimenting with how to introduce both. So that's why the hearing and, and being with the whole body, that's why we say come back to the breath and do the connecting and sustaining when you're not spacious, you're spaced out. And so it's, it's finding both aspects of practice. And if you're finding in your own practice that the precision is really helping you to uh, develop a continuity, a steadiness, a broadness of mindfulness, and you're not getting really tight and contracted, it would be very helpful to work with it. Oh. Yeah, Ken. Along the same lines, there are two different models, two separate models. And the precise model of Upandita is leading to inside of impermanence. But the more spacious model would seem to be aimed at an emptiness. It goes to the same thing. I see a question a little after craving. One goes on the supply side, <laughs> and the other goes on the demand side. I like the way you phrase it, although I don't actually agree with you. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
he's, he was saying he sees the precision side going uh, as, as leading to the inside of impermanence and the spaciousness leading to the inside of anatta. What I don't agree with about that is I don't limit it. I've found working with precision all three, uh, in, uh, impermanence, anatta, and dukkha. Don't forget dukkha. <laughs> um, I've seen very strongly in, in working with precision. It's not just limited to impermanence in any way. And for me, the same way in spaciousness. There might be different times that different ones are highlighted in my practice, and different people might use or, or see different doors more strongly. Like for you, maybe impermanence is a stronger door when you're with precision, um, and maybe not is a stronger door when you're with spaciousness. But I wouldn't want to set up the model that they're that limited. One's sufficient, one door is sufficient. Yeah, he said the pole point's giving up grasp. Yeah, they're all ways of seeing through to the truth. Yeah. And, and there's just, for some of us, different ones are highlighted at different times. But if you pay attention, you'll see all three. There's no way. You can avoid it if you pay attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know you're seeing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says, were we saying it's possible to concentrate on the breath without precision but more spaciousness? I didn't mean to be saying that, although it is possible. I meant to be saying precision could be precise with the breath. It can be precise with a sensation in the knee. It can be precise with the emotion that's arising, precise with a thought. It's, precision doesn't mean just breath. It means whatever is arising is met immediately with a, a clarity of mindfulness that notes very softly, labels, spreads out, and knows what's happening. It's very connected and a clear quality of energy. It's not limited to any special appearance. Breath, sensation, sound, emotion, anything can be met. It, but it's meeting one appearance very clearly and precisely. Whereas spaciousness, we use sound is just a good example of how to connect with a feeling of a more, more open quality of awareness that when you're with sound, the sound arises. There's a clear knowing of it, but there's not the same quality of the attention going and landing directly on the sound, noting it, noticing all its parts and passing. Although you would know that was happening. Do you see what I mean? Yes, but I have something else. It's a little different for me to express it. Um, sometimes I'm focusing on the breath. Mm -hmm. um, but I, if somebody would ask me um, which part of the breath do I really recognize before the end or the beginning, mm -hmm. or which place of the body I realize it, mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question. When you're being with the breath in that sort of general way that feels fine, 
When other appearances arise, for example, thoughts or sensations or emotions, are you aware of them? Do you know what else is arising and happening? Uh -huh. Do you feel like you're getting lost in thought a lot? Uh huh. So you feel there's a clarity of awareness. You know when you're breathing. You know when uh, the attention is with an emotion. Yes. You know when it's with sensation. Yes. Mm -hmm. That feels clear. Yes. And uh I feel it's hard for me to give you an answer without knowing your practice more. I think because um, my tendency is to be a little bit suspicious <laughs> of, of what you're saying. A little, and I, I don't want to just give a, a flat answer because I don't know. There, there can be times when there is this more generalized awareness of breath and that's just how things are happening and you're present and it's fine and it will move into a bit more precision and detail. Or there could also be the possibility that you're sort of present and sort of, it's comfortable, but the energy really isn't quite as alert as it could be. And I feel like from what you've said and my not knowing your practice, I can't give you a cut and dry answer, but I think it's an important question and I would bring it up with your teacher the next time you see them. Because it can, it can go either way and we have to really look. Because this general spacious awareness, one of the drawbacks is, it's nice, it's more comfortable, and you know, I just, I'm quite here and I can just be spacious, resting in clear, vivid awareness, and uh, you know. <laughs> I'm really in myself, I'm highly suspicious of how often that is actually the case. And so it's, it's really to, to have a real commitment. It's not about being comfortable. It's about really knowing what's happening. And in that sort of spaciousness, there can be all kinds of identifications and graspings happening without any sense of knowing it. So I'm not saying be afraid of spaciousness, but I'm saying we, it has to have this quality of vivid awakeness, um, or then it's helpful to come back to precision if, it, if we're just, you know, kind of dancing on a cloud somewhere. This is an ongoing aspect of your practice. Don't think you're gonna get it. You know, it's, it's, it's a dance we're doing all the time. There's no, these are the rules and then you've gotten it and you stay there. It's a, aspect of balance of effort that we all have to be awake to and tuning into in our practice all the time. Okay, so it's, it's time to stop. I think there was a couple of announcements, which I forgot to bring the paper. Any questions from the hospital ward? <laughs> I'm really sorry so many of you are sick. It's really hard to sit when you're sick or when you're well and somebody else is sick. Yes, dear. Um, are thoughts and, and um, uh, 
complacent station is just, they feel inherently different the way I have to treat them or the way I have, I do treat them. It feels like the thoughts of my mind, I keep my mind on a sharp leash and I'm just always jerking back again and out. And as soon as I know the thought, it disappears. Now body sensation, I can know and it continues. The question was about is our thoughts and bodily sensations, do they need to be treated inherently differently? That he feels he can just notice and note a body sensation and stay with it and watch it do its thing, change and go. But in noticing a thought, well, actually, two things I heard. One is that he feels he has to keep it on a short leash and constantly yank the mind back, which was his gesture. And the other thing he says, when he does note a thought, or note what the text is, it disappears. Um, whereas bodily sensation doesn't always disappear. I think um, I hear two things in your question, which may or may not have been there. Uh, I don't think inherently we need to treat thoughts and bodily sensations any differently. They're each just sense impression arising and passing. And if you meet a thought with a balance of attention and note it gently, and that's the second thing I want to say, it, it often, in fact, in my experience, much, much, much more often than not does disappear. Because in a way, the energy of the noting is almost the same energy that would feed the thought. So it's like, the, for me, the energy of the thinking comes out of the text into awareness, noticing what's happening, and it just, it does vanish like a cloud. So not to assume that there's something in the way you're noticing or noting a thought that's pushing it away. That's one thing. On the second hand, though, if the mindfulness and the energy and concentration that meets the arising thought or the middle of the thought isn't quite balanced, it is much easier to get lost in the text of a thought because it's, we're so used to believing that. It's easy to think you're being mindful and you're you know, off on the train. And that can often lead to that yanking back you're talking about. That is not necessary, usually. And if you are noting, if you notice how you note the thought, if there's a hammer in it, it's extra. You don't have to <laughs> crash on the thought, just thinking thinking, planning, it'll vanish. If you're hammering it and yanking back to the breath, then there's an element of, of suppression or striving or fear or whatever, and that needs to be noticed. That quality that's behind that yanking really needs to be noticed. And <laughs> there are times when the opposite unwise effort, not the yanking, but the sort of, thinking, thinking, and we're off, you know, and there isn't quite enough uh, resolute, vigilant energy. And at that time, in a gentle way, you do need to keep your mind on a short leash. So, for example, with obsessive thoughts and so. So, see, it's, it's more tricky. Ultimately, you know, a thought arises and passes like a cloud. A sensation arises and passes like a cloud. Some clouds last longer than others, but they all come... And, 
Is that? Yeah. It's really watching the attitude of the noting and noticing with thoughts. Yeah, Kent. Right along with that, sometimes uh, I identify with the knower or the witness. What's a good note for that? <clears throat> how do I know when I'm identifying? Yeah, is how, so how do you know? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say whichever seems to be the closest for you. For me, uh, I have a couple. One, I actually have a note that's self. It's not, a, it's not a derogatory note, but when I'm aware of there's a sense of self, I, I note it, and what that does is turn my attention around in a way to actually connect with what am I calling the sense of self. So when I note self, I notice what I'm actually, what the attention's actually connecting with, and it's always something different. So that's an interesting one. But then the sense of witness is, actually, that's for me is a little further back, sort of. But still, I would note it as self or knower or knowing, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Trish. The question uh, has a few levels about emotion. Uh, having, uh, is it possible to be sitting on an emotion and not recognize it? But then the example she gave was of having a rageful dream, waking up, noticing that was a rageful dream, but in the moment of waking up, there's no affect. So wondering if it's sort of sitting down there waiting to erupt. Uh, two things. One. Um, It is possible that not to recognize the presence of an emotion, sort of that subtle background tone, and I think we all of us do that quite often, where it's actually present and having an effect. That is possible. But it, I also would be very careful not to assume something's present when there's actually no immediate experience of it at all. So, for example, very often we have very strong dreams on retreat, rageful, ecstatic, fearful, whatever. That's, that emotion is expressing in the dream. I would not assume it's present. If you wake up and it's not present in that moment, stay with what's really true, what you can really experience. Rage might, at some point, arise in your waking, so-called waking experience, and it's, it's possible that it's arisen and you don't know how to recognize it. That's very possible that we've suppressed it. But I, I'd like to, everyone to be really careful, because I think it's something we often do. We assume we're carrying around a certain emotion or a certain store of emotions, and it's here, but I just don't know it. And that's really moving into interpretation. So you can store in your mind, hmm, you know, that was rageful, and I've never noticed it in my daily life. Maybe I don't know how to recognize it. Okay, leave it at that, and stay very clearly with your actual emotional, physical, mental experience. 
And if rage begins to come up, maybe you'll recognize it, but don't assume you're carrying around a huge, you know, ball of it somewhere, simply because whenever we assume something, it, it sets us in a view even without realizing it, we start looking for that. We start interpreting our experience through that view. And it could be a totally cockamamie view, you know? It might not be what's happening or what's going to happen that day at all. So, so just to be very careful between thinking, mm, I don't know about that, and leave it at, I don't know about that, and then really pay attention to what's happening with beginner's mind when it comes up. Okay. So I, it's time for the rest of the day. your practice this morning. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't, I don't have that particular list in my head. She wanted about the five kinds of rapture, but I don't have that list in my head. Sorry. Anything else I cannot answer? <laughs> There's a lot, boy. <laughs> yeah, Vicki. Working with being sick? That's a good question. Um, well, of course, there's a lot of different ways. I'll just probably touch on some of working with being sick. Um, it's not much fun. I find um, it's so obvious, but I find I forget this when I'm sick, of how much the physical uh, discomfort and low energy has such an effect on the mental states, on the state of mind. Um, not just that the energy's low, which is enough, that it's hard to really be, forget being precise. You know, sometimes you can just even barely sort of uh, keep a gentle connection with the body, just very light kind of scanning. Sometimes there's not even enough energy to do that, but just to gently come back when you can. Um, so not only the low energy and the difficulty in any steadiness of mindfulness or precision, but I also find, for me, and I know I'm not the only one, there's a certain a kind of negativity, shall we say, that can take different forms of either just discouragement or, you know, why did this have to happen now? I did so much to come here and now I get sick. And, Whatever particular form that takes, that can, besides the low energy, it can, if we don't realize it's simply a mental state, that our mind is affected by the body, the body is affected by the mind, and not take it personally. I remember once after I'd had a pretty serious operation, and I was in bed, you know, not always in bed, but off and on for about a month, and for the first two weeks I was sort of beating myself up that I was just lying there, sort of out of it, and not using all this spare time to meditate, you know, and be really with it. This, uh, you know, it took me two weeks to get enough kind of clarity to realize I was being ridiculous, 
you know, that there wasn't the energy at that time. So that's one thing, not to, to see the connection between the mental and physical and not to take it personally, not to judge oneself. And then the other, the obvious thing, of course, but I didn't want to say it first because it sounds so Pollyanna-ish, is that it is, it is practice. It's not like we're going to wait till we get well so that we can practice in the clear, connected way that we call practice. Remember Sharon, one of Sharon's first talks where she was talking about being sick in Burma and how it had never occurred to her that uh, in dying you might not feel so well? And, and the uh, teacher said, oh good, your sickness, this cough, is, is practice for dying? I don't think that's a lightly made statement. And I think that to begin to see that practice is much more than being able to match a technique and being able to just balance all the seven factors of enlightenment at a high level, but it's simply to find that we can be where we are. And sometimes where we are is dull and painful and coughing and we don't like it. And there's nothing we can give ourselves a feeling of uh, fulfillment about the way the practice is going. And still, there's the potential for real resting in things just as they are. There's the potential to discover some spacious acceptance and some kind of presence, however dull it is. Uh, and that, that's never taken away from us, even in sickness, but it might not look the way we think we'd like it to look, you know? So it's not a matter of punching effort, it's more a matter of, okay, can I really be here with this and this? And just one moment at a time, one moment at a time. That's, that's all we've got. Um, so, and on a practical level, take care of yourself. <laughs> I mean, really look and see, there's the two alternative ways of practice, uh, the kind of Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Mun way, and I put this out because it's a way that helps some people, which is that if you're a really good yogi, you don't lie down with malaria. That's one, one side of the equation. And the other side is we're not here to deny the existence of our bodies and that the physical is the vehicle we have in this life for our opening and for our awakening. And so not to, to treat the body with disdain or disgust or neglect. That's not neglecting half of our existence. And then there's the far side of what I call the other night idiot compassion of, oh, I might be getting sick. Maybe if I lie down for the next five hours, I'll be able to fight it off. Even though in this moment, nothing's really happening. You know, the fear of getting sick. So it's to, to keep our attention right with what's happening now. Noticing the difference between the physical and emotional and mental tone now and the mind that takes off into fear of the future, the mind that hears a cough, feels a tickle in the chest, and for the next five minutes is in the hospital with pneumonia. And the mind does this. I mean, our minds do this, but to see that's not an accurate reflection and to keep coming back to just how it is, which isn't always so pleasant. That's what I have to say about it. 
So I find the balance between caring for your body, but not, not acting out of fear, acting out of connection with what's true right now. Yeah. There's one announcement. Um, the schedule's a little changed tonight this morning about practice. Oh, yeah, Don. If you're The question is about if you're working with the breath and a thought arises, you're aware of the thought, but you're also with the breath, sort of, as you said, working with the two simultaneously. Should you stay with the breath or stop and note the thought? Um, is the thought continuing or just one of these little quick wisps that comes through very, very well, quick in the background? Two are kind of happening simultaneously. Um, I actually think it's a judgment call, not an absolutely one right or wrong. So uh, for me, it would sort of depend what my intention was, how my practice was going at that moment. So for example, if, as you said, working with the breath, that I am sort of choosing to deliberately refocus and reconnect deeper with the breath, not out of some attachment, you know, I don't want to see other things, but it, it has seemed like a skillful means. Maybe I've been scattered or uh, just feeling like I need to reconnect with the breath. Sort of a little more like uh, a concentration practice. Then I would just notice that thought, but, but refocus with the breath. Okay. But if the mindfulness is quite clear, I'm aware of breath, but the thought comes quick, and then there's breath again, Actually, in my experience, if the mindfulness is clear and steady and the concentration is strong, you're not really with two things at the same time. There's breath, there's thought, there's breath. And the uh, awareness is actually very quick, but there's a consciousness of breath, consciousness of thinking, a consciousness of breath. And if my mindfulness is sharp enough at that time, I would note thinking, notice what happens to it, and then the breath again. Did you see what I mean? So um, generally, I find as the, uh, the, the meditation opens up, we're not just trying to stay with the breath and that it's better if you stay with the breath and can ignore other things. That's not the way this, is, this Vipassana particularly moves. But if you're with the breath, very clearly something arises in that moment. As soon as you're aware of it's arising, note it. Notice what happens, and then the breath can arise again. So we're not trying to head towards more breath and less other things per se, although at times that might be a skillful means. Is that more confusing? <laughs> we always want one way, this is it, this is what I do, no matter what, I don't have to think about it. If have to pay attention right in that moment, what's happening right then. Give up the breath. <laughs> Everything will go to hell if you give up the breath. 
<laughs> Never get back there again. <laughs> that's right, that's the fear. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would notice that intention. <laughs> I'm saying actually really look at, I'm serious about this, this fear of giving up the breath. And I'll never get, I mean, that's exaggerated, we're laughing about it. But I often think underneath that can be functioning. Almost afraid to really let the attention sink into something else because, oh my God, I'll never get back to the breath. And everyone's practice is different. So that's why I'm, I'm trying not to say it's this way. For some people, the breath gets very strong, it's a very strong anchor. And there is much more awareness of breath than other things in a sitting. But that's happening by itself, not out of fear. You know? For some people, for example, in my practice, I take two breaths and I might not see the breath for 15 minutes because so many other things are happening. But if you're aware of what's happening, you can note it, really be with it, notice what happens to it. That's our practice, momentary. A concentration, kanaka samadhi, it's not like, oh my God, clear the fields and get back to the breath because then somehow, you know, I can say I had 20 breaths in a row so I know my practice is going well. You know, it gives us some kind of a, 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 a measuring. So it's to see what's going on. If you're hanging on to the breath out of fear, really look at that. Notice the fear, feel it. If you're staying with the breath because your mind's all over the place and you need to focus, great. If you're staying with the breath because that's really predominant, great. And that can change, you know, in the middle of a sitting. So to, to really look at what's, what's guiding our intentions here. Yeah, Les. <laughs> That's the new one. <laughs> could you hear him in the back? The, you could all hear. Is it okay to note not buying it when you're aware of self judgment? <laughs> it's tricky. I mean, it might, it might be an accurate note for you. If it's a note of what's actually happening and not wishful thinking. You know, personally for me, when I'm aware of judging or self-criticism or self-hatred or whatever, whatever the thought, oh, I can't believe you did that again, you jerk. If I can, no, oh, judging. In that tone of, oh, judging. That tone of voice. I'm acknowledging that tendency, but I'm not at all getting into the content. So that's what I personally do. In using the note, not buying it, If, if in using that note, it's a very um, sort of equanimous tone of noting, just acknowledging, oh yeah, that, not buying it. But I, I, I check it, because it sounds to me like an extra step of, I don't want to buy it. So I hear this, but I'm not buying it, uh-uh, no thanks, a little extra nudge in there. Uh, do you think that's there, or is it just a kind of settled back recognition? No, it, it's a settled back. Yeah. 
Okay. That's the main thing. If it has that quality of recognition, then whatever note really is appropriate for you to recognize it. That's great. As long as the note isn't carrying a little uh, aversion or clinging in it, that's fine. Yeah, no. Um, in this talk last night, Steve made a few comments about uh, memory. Uh-huh. And the memory is the surface in practice. Uh-huh. And if I understood him, um, it seemed like he was suggesting that those memories and coming to a new relationship with them are really uh, an integral part of practice rather than just incidental. And in the past, I thought, you know, when I become aware of that, and remembering what I was supposed to do was to refocus, say, on a primary object of meditation because it's too hard to stay with memories and not get lost. I wouldn't always do that, but that's what I thought I was supposed to do. How do, how do you work with that? I know not to go fishing for them, but when they're there, what do you do? How to work with memories, and I don't want to try and say what I thought Steve meant, so. But how to work with memories when they're arising in practice. Uh, assuming the kind of memories that sort of have a, a context of how we think of ourselves and that, that have some kind of uh, emotional juice to them, right? Not just the odd memories flying through. And he always thought you're supposed to just notice them and come back to the primary object. Not that that's what he always did, but that's what you're supposed to do because you could get too caught up how to work with them, and is it an integral part of practice. So there's different, different ways. Again, it depends on the quality of kind of balanced attention at the time. Um, in general, I think it's true that th there can be periods of time in practice when you're having either floods of memories or a certain specific area of your life, a lot of memories are coming up, and not just sort of, oh, going through, but you can feel an emotional charge in some way to them. And um, I would, but it's not really different from how I treat other th uh, continuing thoughts with an emotional charge, but I would notice the memory. I wouldn't just say enough and try and come back to the breath or something. I'd notice that there's some kind of repetitive pattern of thought. So rather than thinking, I go memory or third grade memory, you know, or family memory or something. And again, open the field of attention and see if I notice some kind of emotional reaction or charge, a clinging, a sadness, whatever, and really be with that. Acknowledge that so that I'm not getting lost in the story, but I'm not pushing away the whole gestalt that's happening. Again, I'd use noting, like, oh, sadness, sadness. Notice as the memory comes up, remembering, remembering, sadness, remembering, sadness, kind of back and forth. And if I get, notice what happens to the memory. So if you can keep noting with ongoing thoughts, that's fine. You're not getting lost in it. Come back to the emotional charge. When it just starts spinning or you're lost, then I would put it down and come back to primary object. And I have often found that without, without deliberately following through the content of a memory, but allowing it when it's coming and acknowledging the emotional aspect, that there, there can come to be very deep psychological insights about ourselves or about some situation we thought we knew but never really had acknowledged the full depth of the impact on us. And I personally think that's a very important aspect of practice. So not just up oh, memory out of here, but still to be able to meet it with mindfulness.
rather than, you know. Okay, I, I think I have to stop for interviews. So have a, about your practice, Mark. question is, in some sittings, although not in all of the sittings, uh, if he doesn't pay precise attention to his posture, basically for the whole sitting, uh, he finds that when his attention is moved off his posture and comes back, either going forward or going backwards somehow, and he has to adjust, is it okay to pay attention to the posture with that uh, degree of one-pointedness? I mean, that's okay. Um, what would happen, though, if you just, if you were allowing your, your attention to be with other things and just didn't worry about the posture, what happens? Um, what happens is uh, I find myself at times very contorted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it yeah. seems to then lead to um, either being obsessed with it or lots of pain later. So in other words, yeah. Trying to stay yeah. straight really is helpful yeah. uh, to clarity of mindfulness as well. I mean, it's okay. I mean, I can sit like this and it's fine, but it seems as if it's not very attentive in one Okay. He could get obsessed with it if he didn't, if he uh, just let it go or it doesn't seem so mindful or he hurts later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, it's not uncommon. It's certain in certain phases of practice that there's some way the energy's moving that actually does sort of contort the body. I personally have periods where I, I sit in a chair with arms and no matter what I do, if I, if I move the attention away from the posture, I end up like this. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's exactly the choice you say. I don't personally find it helpful to always stay with the posture because it has an element as you, as you rightly said, of obsession. It's better if it's straight. It's not mindful if it's slumped. Those are ideas, actually. I find I can be very mindful. I just happen to be hanging over like that. <laughs> and it isn't comfortable by any means. Um, and so I, I really play with the balance of staying with the posture. If I find any element of, nope, stay here. It's got to be straight. Note that right away. Drop it. Let the energy in the practice move in the way it needs to. It's almost like a kind of super control. If it's getting uncomfortable, though, okay, I notice it. Notice the intention to move, straighten up, notice any background little comments about that, and then just let it keep going. Um, oh, Don? Um, would you uh, talk a little bit about secondary anchor? <laughs> um, I understand, for instance, coming out of a train of thought uh-huh. to return to the primary anchor. 
but if but what what I hear a lot in talks and instructions and things is be mindful of the breath, be mindful of sounds, be mindful of sensations, etc. And so I get a little confused as to where to return when I come out of the train of thought. Is it to the primary anchor or is it to whatever is predominant when you emerge from the train of thought? Talking about primary anchor and what he's calling secondary anchor. Um, and what to come to when you come out of a train of thought, is it the primary, which is the breath, or Don, or is it just whatever's predominant? I was just laughing because of our conversation yesterday. Um, I've never personally used the term secondary anchor because I would find that confusing. Um, the idea of using breath, or whether it's hearing or body, whatever you're using as anchor, is that when you come out of a train of thought, if there's even the slightest sense of where to go, you go right to the primary anchor, whether it's breath or whatever. And so I don't personally think of the other things arising as anchors, but whatever, in, in terms of secondary appearances, you could say. But, what, but in any particular moment, there might be something other than breath which is predominant, whether it's thinking or whether it's a sensation or whatever. So if you're coming out of thought and without, without any confusion, without any slightest hint of wondering where to go, you wake up, you notice thinking, and the next thing you're aware of is a pain in your knee or so, you're right there. You didn't even make a choice. That arose, that pain in the knee, the awareness of that was just there. You didn't have to say, should I go to the pain? Should I go to the breath? right there. If you notice thinking, it vanishes and there's kind of not, not even the time to think what now, but just sort of space, then in that moment, the primary anchor, that's its function, um, as a, a predominant experience to collect and focus the attention. So if, you, if you're feeling a need of something or things are quiet, you use the primary anchor. When other things are appearing by themselves, that's why we, we call it really choiceless, because they appear by themselves. And in a way, the noticing happens by themselves, and we just acknowledge the noticing that's already happening by giving it full attention. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh. Mm-hmm. So my question is, does that mean that you're focusing on, and he said this gives the mind more work to do, does that mean that you're simultaneously focusing on the breath and the sitting? No. Um, question about something Upandita said in his talk, um, and if you're thinking of trying this, I'd suggest talking to your teacher, because you could... Um, use it at a time that increases restlessness. He talked about if your mind is complacent or low energy, I suppose, to use uh, sitting and touching. Is she saying is that at the same time as the breath? No, you can't simultaneously do it. It's to, to put in 
And it can, there's different ways it can happen, so I don't know which precise way he was saying in the talk. But it's more of an alternation. The alternation of things to pay attention to takes more effort and can wake the mind up when it's dull or when there's a certain sort of la-di-da attitude going on. Other times it's not a helpful thing to do, and so I'd recommend checking it out with whatever teacher you're seeing to, to see when that's helpful and when it isn't, and there's lots of different ways it can be done. Um, okay, just quick, Lorna. <laughs> oh God. Let it go. It's the apple cake. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, can I intercede? <laughs> I, mean, I think we're laughing because certainly, I, I certainly can totally relate to what you're saying. First, I'd like to put, pull back a little and put this into perspective. I don't think a second piece of apple cake is falling that low. You know, you know what I mean? I think... I think the third, I don't know, that might be it, that's the hell realm, yeah, but the second piece. <laughs> and so, one, just to put in perspective, 
Yeah, the fact that it's not even a question, do we murder, do we you know, hurt somebody, do we lie, we're looking at very, really, it seems huge in the yogi mind, which is good because that's how we're really seeing the process. But in the big picture, looking at the aspects of desire and that, you know, for this moment of sense pleasure, I would willingly give up all my practice and everybody I've ever loved, you know, <laughs> to, that we can see that in a moment. It's, it looms so huge, but it's, it's one moment. All the stuff you said, Lorna, is uh, identification of self around that one moment. You know, there's a moment or several moments of desire, and like you said, what the heck, I eat the cake. And then there's been apparently quite a few moments since then of self-recrimination and kind of, oh my God, I've lost it. All of this, it's like, you haven't lost anything. Seeing this, seeing how strong the force of desire is, no matter what for, and seeing it with mindfulness, because you were, even though we're acting on it, that aspect of seeing it is where the understanding of the real suffering comes. Like it sounds to me like the suffering that you've had from that second piece of apple cake has far transcended the pleasure of it. (laughs) Paying attention to that is how we see that we can be free from it, and that you could actually eat the second piece of apple cake with a sense of spaciousness and freedom. It's not that whether you eat it or not is going to be your salvation. And it's seeing how lost we can get in desire, and how in that moment of desire we don't care if we're in everybody else's way. Seeing that with mindfulness is actually the way to freedom. It doesn't mean you're going downhill. We're seeing how strong conditioning is. The Buddha said once, and I used to think it was weird, but I really get it now, that it's better to do something unskillful with awareness than it is to do something unskillful without awareness. So a lot of our time here, we might be doing little unskillful things with quite a lot of awareness, but not so much mindfulness that we can just say, ah, desire, poof, gone. We're saying, my God, I'm throttled by desire. You know, I cannot, I cannot not act on this. And we act on it and we really experience the suffering. That's wonderful because that's how we really understand the first two noble truths, that the cause of suffering is desire. We really understand it and out of that will come the freedom. So it's, you are not condemned to hell realms, you know, for, for that kind of thing. And it's momentary. There's many more moments when you're really committed to freedom and salvation. We don't have to reify around that one moment of eating the apple cake. You give it more space. Okay, I have to go. <laughs>